0: Doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory.
1: McDavid stops up. What a move! Shoots, scores!
2: Welcome to The Outsiders, brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. This is podcast number 32. I'm Bryn Griffiths, along with Robin Brownley. How are you doing today?
3: I'm terrific, and I've got to say, Bryn, because we've been working remotely the last little while. Yeah. Since we got back at it, actually, we are at the Bryn Griffiths home studio, and it's rather impressive. And who are all? What are all the pictures of that old guy on the wall over there? Funny, you know, I had a conversation once with a
2: friend of ours, Terry Jones, and we were talking about media accreditation. I had boxes of them. I mean, I know you've got boxes of them. But one of the things that he mentioned to me was putting them into shadow boxes or frames so that you could see the body of your work, right? And so that you would be able to, so anyway, I've gone and done that. I took about maybe a third of all my media accreditations and I put them together and put them in a frame and, you know, they've all got stories attached to them. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fun. Like, I've got a couple of Super Bowl accreditations of the three that I have, I've, I've attended. You know, uh, when I worked for the Oilers, I still have a couple of the accreditations from drafts mm-hmm. that I went to. Uh, media passes from Grey Cups. I've got a couple up there. Stanley Cup Championships. Eskimo and Calgary Stampeder Accreditations when I was working in Edmonton and Calgary. A couple of pictures of me holding the Stanley Cup. One on an aircraft with Adam Graves. For goodness sakes, that goes back to uh, that goes back to 1990, and some uh, newspaper clippings from when I worked in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, covering the Moose Jaw Warriors, doing play-by-play. So I'm happy with that. It's you know, it looks like the kind of thing my dad would have done years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. But everything's got a story for me. Oh, the other one that I'm very pleased about is I have my ticket because when I worked for the Oilers, I was given two season tickets, and I have my ticket and my all access pass from the Wayne Gretzky Bannerment retirement night which is still a, a real career highlight for me but also is the most nervous I've ever been of anything I've ever done because I knew the city was watching to make sure that we pulled this thing off properly because the world would be watching how we retired Wayne Gretzky's banner right from uh, Wayne coming out in a pickup truck that I still laugh about right to Joey Moss. With the Wayne Gretzky banner upside down. Yes. Which is still a great classic moment. And I still love it and I still laugh every time I think about it. Anyway, so it's uh I'm happy I did it. I got the time to do it, so why wouldn't I?
3: Well, long past the time when your fears are alleviated or not, the Oilers pulled it off. They tend to do that with the pregame ceremonies. That's one thing. Great teams, bad teams, in between teams, they've always done. Those kind of things, first class, and that Gretzky banner night was uh, one for the uh, memory banks.
2: Yeah, it certainly was. It was for me. That's and I slept like a baby that night, but I didn't get to bed till very late as well. Hey, a couple of things we're going to touch on. One, this is Masters Week, and I love watching the Masters in April. Here we are going to watch the Masters in November. No fans along the uh, the course. I don't think you're going to see the flower beds blooming like we do every April. It's going to have a different look about it. But joining us on the podcast today, longtime writer, hockey writer. Uh, He's done it all. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he did exceptionally well was write about golf. And that's Cam Cole, a friend of ours, I'm happy to say. And he's going to join us to talk about uh, his reflections of Augusta National and that whole experience and a little bit of other golf stuff too while we're talking about it. But a uh, couple other little uh, things I want to talk about before we get going here. This past week I felt completely lost because during the weekdays, now that the World Series is over, okay, so there's no NHL hockey, there's no NBA, there is no there's there's no World Series. So Monday through Friday I'm a little lost. I make it up with college football and the NFL on Saturday and Sunday and maybe some other sports, but I'm struggling with live sports, not seeing enough of it when I want, not just on the weekend. Are you, and and, you know, it's great to have extra family time.
3: I don't think it's not affecting you, is it? Oh, no. I mean, we're, we're, you know, happy as bugs in a rug at home uh, through all this uh, COVID stuff. But you know what? We're lucky. Speaking of cam, it's going to be different, but you know, the masters has always signaled sort of the official arrival of spring for me yeah well now it's the official arrival of november uh it's going to be different and it's got a limited run but at least we've got that coming up hopefully we get to a point you know where we can get some other sports up and running it's going to take a while we still have to wait on the national hockey league what are they going to do we have to get you know
2: look at the nba say they're going
3: to start up on the 22nd of december well, I tell you, I I hope they can because the thing that's put us in the situation we're in—not to harp on it—we got to get the COVID numbers under under control yeah. because I don't want to. You know, I don't know what hockey's going to be like starting in January if they, in fact, get it done. Then, in terms of the NHL or the NBA now, but I'd like to see it happen because if we if the numbers aren't right, we're not even going to be able to play limited season. So. Hopefully we straighten that out and we're not looking for yet another Netflix series to watch.
2: One of the things you and I've been talking about off, off air, if you, if we can still call it that on this podcast is talking about getting to our guests a little quicker and we can talk more at the back end. And that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to get to cam Cole coming up here shortly, but we have to tell you the outsiders is brought to you by the Macintosh group at Remax river city. 2020 has been a real interesting year for everybody. I don't think that uh, that's a real shocker or a news bulletin. It certainly brought on some new challenges when it comes to selling homes in the Edmonton area and also right across the country. But the Macintosh Group at Remax River City, they rose to that challenge and they're finishing the year rather successfully. They're really quite pleased with how the year has rolled out, considering how it started. We've uh, just started a podcast. I'm working with Brent on a podcast called. Just Sold with Brent McIntosh, which you can also download. And Brent's uh, got some interesting little tidbits that you can catch. So all you have to do is go to your favorite ear candy sites like, uh, obviously, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and the same way you get a hold of this podcast and uh, you can tune them in for sure. But if you're looking for a real professional group to help you sell or buy a home then uh, then give Brent and his team a call they'd love to hear from you uh, you could reach them the Macintosh group at 780-464-0075 or the or sorry the and the website is macintoshgroup.ca is the website and they're looking for sellers buyers and they're also looking for a new agent so if that is uh, an area that let's say you're out of work but you have that skill set give Brent a call they would love to hear you over there Okay, we got to do it the right way. Let's do this, shall we? And let's
0: just ease in.
2: Are you feeling relaxed, Robin? Are you okay over there?
3: I'm sleeping now.
2: Well, you don't have to be because he's uh, about to speak. The Masters. I love this week. This is a great week. I think I prefer it in April rather than November, but you know, for us, we're just watching it on TV. We don't have that opportunity to actually go, so we decided let's talk to the one guy that we know has been there a lot, and that is Cam Cole, longtime writer. Hey, Cam, how you doing?
1: Good, Ben. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. It's uh, It really is a special week just to watch it on television, but do you remember the first time that you went to Augusta National and what that was like?
1: I do remember because I was down in uh, Jacksonville uh, for the end of spring training and uh, drove up through Georgia and South Carolina and uh, ended up kind of writing a travelogue piece about the journey up through all these backwoods places to get to this gleaming, sunshiny oasis in the middle of a bunch of strip malls and, you know, not a very pretty town, but a very awesome golf course. And it was, uh, it was quite an experience walking up uh, from the press center, just a few steps out to the edge of the number one fairway on a morning when not one spectator had yet set foot on the club. Uh, And just seeing how incredibly manicured everything was, it was like stepping into the Garden of Eden, I guess, it was just amazing. And I, I've never forgotten that every year that I went for 24 years after that, I, I would walk out of that press center, out through some, uh, you know, a cart path and some, some bushes, and then out onto the first fairway. And I had the same chills and the same feeling every year that I went back.
3: Now, Cam was was your first was your first year ninety three the year we flew into Florida and you did a little bit of uh, uh, spring training with the Marlins before going to Augusta.
1: Correct. Yeah, I, I uh, it was ninety three and that was the year Bernard Longer uh, mm-hmm. won. Uh, and you know, yeah, every year up until and including twenty sixteen, I went after that. So.
3: That's a lot of, I tell you what, that's a lot of bucket list stuff there, Cam. Um, You were obviously there for uh, Mike Weir's win. Uh, You were there for uh, Tiger's dominance of, what what was it, four in six years or seven years before he he got this last one in 19. Um, To ask you for highlights would take a long time, but when you think back to that, How about the talk about the Weir thing just from the Canadian angle? That was huge back then, wasn't it?
1: Well, it was in the middle of Tiger's prime and Phil Mickelson's prime. And so, you know, from 91 to and including 96, uh, only Tiger or Phil won the Masters, except I'm sorry, 2001 to 2006, except the year that Mike Weir won. And so he won that thing in the middle of two great players primes. And I think not a lot of people give him enough credit for what it took to do that, uh, for a guy that doesn't hit the ball a mile on a course that really rewards the long hitters. So, uh, just a it was, it was a fantastic week, uh, not a great weather week, kind of a really lousy weather week as a matter of fact. And it was also the week that, uh, Martha Burke had her protest. Uh, oh, yeah. over the old men's club and uh, and all that. And so there was a lot to write about beside Mike's win, but Mike's win uh, by itself was certainly one of the highlights of uh, of the sixty six or so major golf championships that I got to cover. That was a that was a great week,
2: Cam. That particular week, when did you start to think, hey, you know, this Mike Weir story? is not only developing, we might have a real winner here.
1: Well, Mike, has, Mike had had already a good season at that point. He'd won a couple of tournaments, and he'd, uh, you know, so he wasn't a total outsider. I don't think many people gave him a chance on a, a wet and soggy Augusta course to uh, to stick with the big hitters. But uh, he started well, and he, he just kept making the putts. And I think... Uh, Mike has always been one of those streaky putters where if he got the putter going, uh, he was dangerous. And uh, so I don't think even up to the last day, uh, he was by any means a favorite, but uh, he had to complete one round uh, overnight sort of thing and clean it up the next morning. And then, you know, so it was kind of a long slog to, to get the job done, but, boy he made every putt that he looked at coming down the stretch including some real testers including I thought the clutch putt of all time for him on 18 just to get into the playoff and uh, uh, you know I would say maybe Sunday morning it looked like Mike had himself a chance to do this thing not until then
3: it's interesting When you look at a guy like Weir, who, like you said, uh, got his win when there were some other dominant players there, you go to a guy uh, like Tiger, uh, who's back in it this year, as is Mike Weir all these years later. uh, Tiger was more obviously not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, He was the long guy. He was the athletic guy, totally different player. Um, People always want to compare eras and you know he's got the he's got the five green jackets now, but talk about those t- Tiger years, for lack of a a better term. I'm trying to think of a a more dominant uh, golfer. I haven't seen one because Jack Nicklaus is a little too far back for even me. But um, has there been another stretch like that for anybody?
1: Oh, I think uh, during Jack's prime uh, prime years. It was a rare major when Jack wasn't the contender. And, uh, you know, so Jack's prime probably lasted longer strictly because he never got himself into a jackpot like Tiger did in the middle of his career and Mm. had to come back from it. Um, But I think uh, Jack's record of uh, wins and second places and third places in majors, if you go back over his uh, timeline, is just astounding how many he was there or thereabouts to win. And uh, so, yeah, I would say that the, the the similarity between those two is that each was in his day, at least early in his day, much longer than almost anybody else. I mean, Jack was a big, big hitter at a time when, you know, they were still using persimmon wooden clubs and uh, <laughs>
4: uh,
1: ballada golf balls. So... Uh, you know the distances that you look at are not the same, uh, but the the margin that each player had over the others of mm-hmm. his time was similar, and uh, and that's always been an advantage at Augusta. So Jacks won six, and Tiger's won five, and Phil's won three, and you know some some pretty pretty big hitters there have have done very well at Augusta.
3: Yeah, that's the thing. I guess you know, in many cases, you know what you see, and uh, you're a little bit older than me, not that much, but I just don't remember seeing Jack. The record book tells me uh, everything I need to know, and I don't think uh, Tiger pulls ahead in that greatest of all time argument because he's lost that time where it went off the rails for him, and I I don't think he has enough time left to get it back, but... um, those two dominant at the top uh, in their eras. Is there anybody out there right now, Cam, whether we're talking, you know, playing at Augusta coming up here or just in general that has a chance to put together any kind of stretch even resembling what we saw to those two? I mean, I don't know. Does, Does Dustin Johnson have any shot? Is there a name out there that has a chance that's young enough and good enough to be that good or almost?
1: Well, I mean, the the key is young enough, right? Uh, for, a, for a while, it looked like Jordan Spieth was going to be that guy. He finished second in his first Masters in 2014, won it in 2015, finished second in 2016. It looked like he was going to be there every time he teed it up there because he just seemed to love the golf course and it loved him back. And then... Disaster struck, and uh, he hasn't been the same player since. So Augusta giveth and Augusta taketh away. In terms of his career, I don't know that he's going to be able to resurrect things. Uh, the obvious names are guys like uh, Bryson DeChambeau. If he if he is able to overpower this course, the new Bryson DeChambeau, the 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 gorilla. Yeah. If he's able to overpower this course this year or next year and stays healthy, I don't know how the heck he's going to do it, swing as hard as he does, but if he manages to keep his body working and discovers the, the secret of unlocking Augusta, uh, he's got the length to do whatever he wants to with that golf course or almost any other golf course. Uh, he would be the guy that stands out to me as young enough and Strong enough and long enough to get it done. There's other guys that are that are really, really good players. Colin Morikawa, good young player. Uh, you know, Kepka, who's not maybe young enough at this point to go on a run like Tiger had, but he he seems to be immune to major championship nerves. He just goes out and plays mm-hmm. and and wins a lot, and so. You know, there's a few guys, but you, I really do believe that Nicholas was and Tiger was more than generational players. They were they were all time players, and I just don't see anybody doing the kinds of things that that they did. Uh, maybe it'll happen. Maybe there's there's more guys down the road, but I don't think we're in that era yet.
2: You've seen them play up close. You know, get a chance to watch them on television. What's happened to Rory?
1: I don't think Rory's head is a hundred percent in it. I think Rory's Rory's such an interesting guy, and I I, I love Rory. I think he's uh, an honest, you know, sort of unflinching about his own abilities and everybody else's. He's uh, he won't duck a question. He'll give you a, an honest answer. I like the guy. Uh, I don't think he's a hundred percent engaged in in being the best that he can be. I don't think he's as driven as Tiger who was in his day laser focused on every major to the point of, you know, exclusion of everything else in his life. And I think uh I think Rory's just got too many other interests and he's too engaging and too engaged in in life to be that that uh, consistent and so when things start going to heck for him on a, in a round of golf, he kind of shrugs it off. He doesn't look like he's, you know. Going to uh, battle through it? He's not a grinder, per se, the way Tiger was. Tiger never gave up on a shot. Whereas Rory will kind of shrug it off and say, oh, that's not my week.
2: We also watched a young Spaniard jumping up and down or running up and down fairways named Sergio Garcia, who is not uh, participating this year. Is it pretty, is he is he getting to the end here? Because it just doesn't seem like he's quite got it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Sergio had only a couple of major challenges, not a couple, a handful. Uh, hasn't been a great player in majors. Uh, you know, had a chance to win a couple of uh, open championships in Great Britain. Uh, but Sergio is another one of those guys that's kind of, flaky to put it <laughs> in nice terms Not okay super well-liked guy uh just has some quirks to his personality that uh he's a bit of a whiner he was a you know a guy who's always thought the fates were against and you know he had to beat the whole world and the golf gods too and it was just you know his act got a little tired so i don't know that He's got the mental makeup to be a a long-term major championship guy.
3: Cam, it's interesting to me. I look through the field here, and there's the young guys who are going to contend, and then I see a name like, you know, Mike Weir. Uh, I see Vijay Singh. I see some other older players. Now, these guys likely aren't going to challenge for anything, but – when you watch them play, does, it's one another one of those reminders of how quickly time goes by, isn't it?
1: Well, there is kind of a you know an invisible line there for most players where they get to a certain age and something deserts them. They can't hold the putts anymore. They start to get the shakes over the five footers, or uh, you know they run into driving problems, or. You know, there seems to be like a dividing line for most players where they just can't do the whole thing anymore and can't do it for four rounds. Uh, You'll see guys, you know, because you win the Masters, that means you get to go until you're 65. And Mm -hmm. if you want to compete, unless they send you one of those... uh, suggesting letters that says you're not competitive anymore (laughs) you're cluttering up the field why don't you sit this one out which the masters sometimes does to guys uh but basically you're allowed to keep playing there and so these guys go back every year because it's a wonderful experience and it's a tribute to what they've done in their careers but there are lots of guys in every masters field that have no chance to win and sadly i would put mike and VJ and some of those guys in that category, they've just reached an age where Mm -hmm. uh, they can compete on the champions tour, but this is a great big long golf course and, and demands a a top level game from whoever's going to contend. And those guys don't have enough of the elements anymore.
3: Now, speaking of that group, I see Fred couples now, (laughs) <laughs> I tell you, was there ever a more beautiful golf swing than Fred Couples and the the physical problems he had, we'd see him uh, with some more uh, titles on his resume if it wasn't for those, wouldn't we?
1: Well, we sure would. And it would have been a very popular thing if he'd been able to win a lot more majors than just the one, uh, the one masters in 92 was the year before I started going to the masters. So uh, I kind of missed Freddie's era of uh, certainly his win although it seemed like every year that i went back uh freddie 20 years later was still you know was still up there in the first couple of rounds and you go freddie he just has such a rhythmic perfect tempo golf swing and he can still get it out there a long way not as long as the big hitters of today but long enough at augusta that he was able to play long after you would have thought his prime was long gone he was just one of those dogged guys that would always be hanging around and hanging around you go how is freddie doing this and it's it was an every year occurrence or an every second year occurrence make you shake your head well
2: staying with that we keep hearing people always talk about how important the Experiences for the veteran guys who have not only won there but have played there year after year after year. Here's the question for you: Is that experience more important in the first two rounds or the last two rounds?
1: Well, it's uh, the the closer you get to actually con- contending on Sunday, the more experience matters because the uh, you know maybe it'll be different without the crowds this year. I think that's a good question whether. The, the intensity of playing that final round and the back the quote unquote back nine on Sunday is as excruciating an experience, but under normal conditions, uh, the back nine on Sunday will really separate you from your intestines if you're not <laughs> if you haven't been there before, or if you uh, haven't been in contain- contention in a major, very often so that's where it really pays off i think the lots of lots of guys who have never you know been on the map before will be on the leaderboard the first two days you see weird leaders all the time after the first round or even the second round but it uh it percolates as the tournament goes on and you start to see the the uh great players rise up on the leaderboards to the point where there are, there are not very many pretenders up there, generally speaking on Sunday.
2: Why is it that golf magic seems to be elevated, not only at this event, but also the open championship? Is it just the tradition and the history that takes it to the next I, level?
1: I really think that, that great courses and great events bring out greatness in great players. So my last, uh, open championship at Troon in 2016 was that uh, great battle between Henrik Stenson and Phil Mickelson where they just threw haymakers at each other on every hole of the final round. It's the greatest duel I'd ever seen. I never saw the Nicholas Tom Watson uh, Turnberry thing in 75, uh, but you know, this was sensational. And I really thought that, and I've thought often that the courses over there And this one, because they play it every year, really bring out something special from these players. And it's a rare major, rare Open Championship or Masters that I've covered that didn't have just incredible drama and incredible play from the winner.
3: Speaking of drama, uh, before you came on, Brent and I were YouTubing Tiger Woods chip-in. Not only the circumstances of that huge bend and the ready-made Nike commercial it provided with the uh, ball sitting on the lip. But the call was fabulous. Now, were you back in the media center banging off a story? Were you in the gallery? Where were you when that moment unfolded?
1: At that moment, I was probably still in the media center. In fact, I do remember seeing it on my monitor, which they they give you a monitor right in front of your uh, seat uh, at every seat. Uh, nowadays, there's two or three, but in those days, there was a there was a monitor there, and then there's also a big screen. And I'm sure I would have been pounding my copy at that point, uh, and then went out to 18 as they came in uh up 18 so if i'm not mistaken i can't quite remember i think that's the year he ended up in a playoff with chris demarco and uh and so i would have been out there at 18 to watch them play
4: mm-hmm.
1: that hole because it's you know maybe 100 and 150 yards meters from the uh press center up to the 18th green. So. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I would have watched that one on TV and been just as awestruck as everybody else sitting at home.
2: You said up to the 18th. I've talked to so many people who've gone there and I asked them for their impressions of their first outing there. They always talk about the elevation, how you don't see that on television. It it seems like it's flattened out for TV. Did you feel the same way? Like there's a little more hill, hilly action there than you would think.
1: Oh, there's a lot more hilly action. If you want to walk that course, which I've only done about a hundred times, <laughs> you have to, you know, pack a lunch literally because it's a hard climb in some places. Mm-hmm. The the walk up 18 is straight uphill all the way to the green from T to, T to green. It's like you get down to a little uh, low spot just below the T and then, it's a track up the hill to the 18th green. And there's a few spots like number eight that are like that. And, and some real elevation changes that you didn't see at all before HDTV. Yeah. And you can see now somewhat, uh, and depending on the camera angles uh, you can pick out some, some relief in the topography, but it really is. It really is a surprisingly hilly piece of uh architecture and and a great walk if you're looking for exercise
3: now cam you've seen that firsthand watching those guys play it but to the envy of many you've also played that course and you're a you're a hell of a golfer at least you were last time i saw talk about how many times did you actually play it and talk about walking down the fairways and putting on the greens that you were writing about other people playing on all those years?
1: Well, you know, I, well, I played it three times. I played it in, uh, 96 after, uh, Faldo beat Greg Norman. And then I played it after, I think Phil's win in 2004 or so, and then played it again in 2000, I don't know, 13 or something. It, it's a deal where, you enter the lottery with your press ticket when you when you check in they give you your credentials and a little ticket like a you know drink ticket sort of thing and you <laughs> drop it in the jar and it's got your number on it and you keep the the stub and uh, they write down your number and blah 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 and on sunday morning or saturday morning they draw the names of those guys who get to play the course on monday morning and uh if you win uh you can't even enter the lottery for the next seven years wow and so by covering 24 of these things i got to enter it several uh, you know several times and uh was lucky enough to get picked three times it's it's exactly what you kind of think it's going to be because everybody that watches the masters pretty much gets a great idea of what what the variables on the golf course are. And then when you've walked it a bunch of times, as I had done even before the first time I got to play, um, you, you f- I feel as though I know that golf course as well as I know the one that I play every day here in Kelowna. Uh, honestly, there are very few surprises uh, other than the fact that you're not hitting it in some of the places that those guys hit <laughs> it. Uh, but on some holes you are because when you are a press guy playing this course, they don't play you from the tips. They play you from uh, a variable of the members tees. So you're playing a, gosh, I don't know what it would be, 66 or 6,700 yards, I don't know, Mm -hmm. course, as opposed to, you know, eight or 900 yards more for the men uh, that play the tour. So, yeah, I mean, it's... You hit it in the fairway because there's lots of room to hit it in the fairway. But then as you approach the greens, you realize, darn it, I put it in the wrong part of the fairway here to get any (laughs) chance to get it on the green in a puttable area. There's little areas of the green that you've got to hit if you want to go to the flag that they have that day. And if you're on the wrong side, if you're short and the pin is long, if you're left and the pin is right, you're going to three-putt that baby if you're lucky. And it's just a very demanding second-shot golf course, I think, far more so than the drive.
2: Just stay with me for this, and I'll bring it back. But in 2005, three weeks before the Open Championship, I had a chance to play, thanks to Peter Dawson and the RNA, the old course. And they set me up with a caddy, and his advice for me, as everybody's standing around the white picket fence is, teed the ball up high in a real Scottish brogue. That way it'll look good rather than top the ball and have to chase it down (laughs) there a little bit. Were you given any assistance or did you have to pretty much go on your own on that course?
1: No, you have a caddy. Um, uh, You either pay a caddy as I did the first two times or, uh, and they are club caddies Yeah. uh, or the third time, They had evolved the uh, press draw to such a point as to haul us into the media center, all the lottery winners, and say, okay, here's how it's going to be tomorrow when you come here. You are going to be a member of Augusta National Golf Course. You don't put your hand in your pocket at any point. You will drive up Magnolia Lane. We will park your car for you. Uh, we'll take your clubs out, we'll set you up with a caddy who will take your clubs down to the practice range. You will have breakfast, Uh, you will change in the champion's locker room, you will have breakfast in the clubhouse, then meet your caddy at the range, you'll practice for as long as you can before your tee time, Uh, and then uh, on the first tee, we will announce your name, and uh, off you go, and say you're not allowed to pay your caddy because we take care of that. So huh. it was like a wow. an incredible experience the so last time far more so than the first two which were still pretty good. And uh but none of us in my group anyway could live with the fact that we weren't giving our caddies anything for the you know for the effort. So I remember gave my guy 100 bucks I think and the other guys I think gave their caddies whatever they decided but to me the idea of playing Augusta National and all it set you back is a hundred bucks is like a wow, you know, literally winning the other lottery. So uh yeah, what a what a fantastic experience that was and and uh be hard pressed to think of any other career I could have had that would have given me some of the opportunities I had that golf gave me. And I understand what you're saying entirely about needing a caddy. At, at the old course as well because that's another mystery where if you don't know where to hit it you're going to be in pot bunkers all day chipping out sideways
2: well i was told to aim at the tv tower when i realized the fairways over to the right (laughs) and and the first thing i learned on the first two holes was whatever the caddy tells me i'm doing it
1: yeah yeah i remember a caddy at saint andrews telling me you know, aim at that. Do you see that brick, uh, you know, stone building over there? And I go, yeah. He's okay, there's your target. So I'd hit it, you know, an inch to the left of the, you know, by accident. And he'd go, Oh, not there, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there's some great caddy story. I don't know how well, you know, Alan Watt, uh, the old CBC mm-hmm. radio guy, but Alan and Eskimo, yep. uh, PR guy, but honestly, Alan has some hilarious stories. There's a, a Don Whitman story. I don't know how much time we still have. Oh, we're with, good. Uh, Don Whitman goes to St. Andrew's, uh, I think, during the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh, God, back in the 80s, and he's he's on the first tee box and his caddy is looking at him and, and uh, he says, look, I, I'm going to have to club you here, so why don't you take a few practice swings and uh, by the way, what's your handicap? And Whitman says, I'm a, I'm a nine. And the guy goes, Oh, okay. Well take a few swings for me. So Whitman takes a few swings and the caddy stands back and he goes, you must be a hell of a putter. (laughs) (laughs) If you know St. Andrew's, if you know St. Andrew's, the first tee heads one direction and just off to your left is the 18th green. Yeah. Like, right next to you and uh so the story goes that a japanese uh, group appears on the first tee probably with rented clubs and there's a brisk headwind blowing into the golfers and this fella tees it up hits it straight up in the air off the top of his driver and the wind carries it off to the left onto the 18th green <laughs> Wow. And the caddy turns to him and he goes, Oh, a wee putt you around in two.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, man. A anyway, wee putt.
1: Caddies caddies over there all have a great sense of humor. And, uh, we had some great conversations with them in, in, uh, bars and uh, pubs over there in St. Andrews, which is a lovely little town, as you know. And, yep. and uh, when when Tiger was a an amateur, uh, he had a guy named Bruce Sorley was a local uh, character who was his caddy, and we saw Bruce the night before the opening round in the in the Dunvegan pub uh, just around the corner from the golf course, and he was several sheets to the wind we thought, and uh, one of our guys, Mark Wicker from the Orange County Register says to him, Bruce said, don't you have to caddy for Tiger tomorrow? And he says, oh, yeah. And he goes, well, what are you doing drinking in here? He says, well, i just had the one. And so uh, we are going, okay, we'll see. But there he was the next morning, and Tiger likes to play early, and I think he was out early the next morning, and oh, boy. <laughs> Those guys, uh, they all stick together. They've all got great stories to tell, and uh, that would be a a a book someday of some enterprising journalist to go over there and just interview old course caddies.
3: Now, Cam, I mean, I think you're probably, you you keep pretty low these days. So I don't know if you've got any writing in you, but uh, I'm sure a hundred people have said, when are you writing a golf book? Because, and you know, not to grease you here, but, I didn't. I haven't read a lot of, of better golf writing than what I saw out of the Masters. There's a bunch of really good guys, but you you put a touch to it that I always enjoyed. Do you have? Is there any chance at all ever that you're gonna maybe put pen to paper uh, about golf?
1: I don't know, Robin. I've gotten awfully lazy in here in retirement playing golf, and you know. Uh, sitting around reading and listening to music and, you know, just generally not working. I'm loving the idea of never having a deadline, even if it's a six months deadline to come mm-hmm. up with a book. I'm just, uh, I'm not highly motivated to do any writing anymore. And people that, people that uh, read me for years are all amazed that I was able to give it up without, you know, a major trauma. But believe me, the business, as you well know, Robin, just became less and less and less fun as the years Mm -hmm. went on. Uh, You'd lose colleagues all the time. You'd watch the way the business ate people up and cast them off. And honestly, the newspaper business kind of soured me. And so I think in terms of writing, I kind of got a little burned out too, as more and more and more was asked of us, Uh, the fewer and fewer people Mm -hmm. that were left in the newsrooms and uh you know so it would take something extraordinary for me and you know i don't think there's many extraordinary book deals anymore for guys like me i think uh you know they're almost uh, vanity uh publishing when when people do a book now unless it's about someone with a really famous name that they're writing about the subject of the book uh tends to be a you know a a vanity project in a way I might be wrong about that, but that's my impression. And so I think probably, unless it's a collection of columns that I've written Mm -hmm. uh, where I wouldn't have to, you know, bust my butt too (laughs) too hard to put it together, I think uh, it's kind of unlikely.
2: It's funny, I just uh, spun around in my chair here and I pulled one book off my bookshelf. And yes, I'm one of these people that still has a bookshelf. And there's a book (laughs) called Playing Through by Curtis Gillespie where he took his whole family and they set up camp in St. Andrews for a whole year. It's just a great read. I love going back to it over and over and over again because I find new things in it all the time. But when it comes to reading uh, golf material, do you have a favorite writer, a Canadian favorite writer or an American or any kind of writer, somebody who's able to convey the sport of golf the way you like it and would like to remember it?
1: Well, because, because he wrote with, tongue in cheek and a major smart ass attitude. I love Dan Jenkins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always loved reading Dan Jenkins and his books were the books that I read on golf more so than the serious tomes that were often written by more serious guys. Uh, Dan was a serious writer, but he wrote funny and I loved that. And, uh, you know, of the serious guys, uh, and and it's funny that you had mentioned playing through because uh, Lauren Rubenstein in, in uh Toronto wrote a book called A Season in Dornock about uh, living in Dornock Scotland one of the great old courses up there very much north in Scotland and uh, he's a great, uh, great golfer, great golfer's written some very fine books and and columns and continues to write some golf stuff he's been He's been a great golf writer for a long time and and certainly a guy I admire in Canada. And uh, But, you know, as you say, uh, I think a lot of general sports columnists in the United States can sit down and write you a darn nice golf column on just because they're good writers and it doesn't really matter if golf is their specialty. Um, um, so you want specialists, I would take Lauren. You want guys that will just make you laugh and make you understand what really went on in a round of golf. I'd take Dan Jenkins, but, uh, lots of great golf writers.
3: So Cam, uh, before we let you go, I got to ask best round, uh, at the masters in those three times for you and best score, maybe more, uh, precise. And how's the game today?
1: Well, uh, there was very little difference in the score of the three times I played at Augusta. I pl- I think I was 83 the first time I played and then seven or eight years later, by which time I'd started to get a little creakier in my swing. I was 84. And the third time I was 84. So uh, those three uh, right now, because I'm retired and I'm playing more golf than I ever have in my life, I've managed to bring my handicap down to, Well, for a long time this summer, it was a one. Uh, At the moment, it's two. And uh, I'm playing the best golf of my life at age 67. So I'm a very happy man right now about my golf game.
2: Let me write that down. Do not play for cash. It's Okay, there we go.
1: (laughs) You know what? It's a good thing to play me for cash because anytime (laughs) it gets really serious, I can't play to my handicap. So (laughs) you're going to make a lot of money betting against
3: me. Okay it's not even fair the guy can write golf the guy can play golf there's Sickening. those of us who are zero for two on that front
2: <laughs> hey listen yeah uh, man this has been great great to catch up uh we miss reading your stuff yeah. I-, I gotta say and you know you've been highly entertaining on twitter lately uh but you've been highly entertaining on twitter for a long time as well since you've joined up there so I'd love to. I would like to read more of your stuff. If you ever get that interest in writing a book, I'd be the first one to line up and buy it. And thanks for your time today.
1: Well, thank you, guys. It's been great chatting with you. Here
4: it comes. Oh my goodness.
3: seen anything like
2: that you know that's almost a little Christmassy. <laughs> i think based on the fact that uh in the edmonton area we received up to 25 centimeters of snow and it, uh, it, it's funny, you were talking about the Masters heralding the start of spring. Yes. And this time around, it's doing the exact opposite. It's winter in full speed, at least in this neck of the woods. Other areas down in Ontario, they've had temperatures in the 20s. Uh, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about, we've lost a couple of guys uh, this past week who've had sports connections. Want to start with Howie first, Howie
3: Meeker? Well, I tell you what, anybody I want to say 45 plus probably really remembers Howie Meeker in his pale blue jacket with his telestrator and the stop it right there. Stop it right there. Back it up, will you, fellas? Howie Meeker was such a delightful guy and a passionate guy when it came to hockey that, uh, you know, people, he's unforgettable to those people who met him. Now, you know, 97 is a, is an awful good run. Yeah. Uh, that's a life well lived, but it's a reminder again, that, that time passes. But I remember how he was a staple on hockey night in Canada. And I went to school out on the Island. I have relatives not far from where Howie retired to in Parksville. And, uh, Terrific guy, loved the game, and the game loved him. So, um, uh, Godspeed, Howie Meeker. Won the Calder in
2: 1947, Mm -hmm. four-time Stanley Cup champion with the Toronto Maple Leafs, member of the Order of Canada, and also the Foster Hewitt Award for his TV work. Like In this particular case... He was with John Well. Speed, speed, speed. How about <laughs> that Linsman
0: and Messier? Each one of them got motors on those skates. Man, can they ever go. <laughs> Lots of chances. Messier playing a super hockey game. Yeah, and Linsman too. Linsman went around the outside of the defenseman twice in a row, and then the second, third time put it between his legs and had a try. It's really something else. What about the Flames? What are they doing wrong? Oh, they got a floor check. They're giving up the puck too easy. They're dumping it in the Edmonton zone, and then la da 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 and Edmonton are just bringing it out. Gone <laughs> to the attack. They have to go in there and take the man. Yeah. I thought Calgary would hit somebody to start this hockey club. It's the other way around. Edmonton did going check. to be a little more physical. We talked about that earlier. Okay, what have we got? Well, hell, you and I could play out there. It's not that physical, <laughs> no
2: problem at all.
0: There you go. There's Howie Meeker.
2: <laughs> old-time hockey, old-time hockey night in Canada. And, uh, yeah, we learned an awful lot. He brought out that telestrator, brought the pan out, was able to break it down for us so we could understand the game at a different level at a different time. So, Howie will be missed. Another guy we lost, and an iconic Canadian who is known on both sides of the border, Alex Trebek, losing him to pancreatic cancer at the age of 80. Now, Al, how much did you watch Jeopardy? It was a staple at our place because it was always on at dinner time. Mm -hmm. You could sit in front of the TV and watch Alex correct people. And I kind of liked that. But he was a huge hockey fan. Yes. Being a Canadian from Sudbury. Also went to the University of Ottawa. Still, uh, Still to this day was pumping cash into different programs and different facilities at the University of Ottawa right up to the end. And we don't know how much further his philanthropy will go. But one of the things that I loved was because it was a brainiac show, he didn't like calling it a game show. He'd like to call it a quiz show. But one of the things is he loved to watch people who were really intelligent struggle when it came to talking about sports. Yes. Like this particular moment when they were talking about football, uh, football 200.
0: Your choice, do or don't name this play in which the quarterback runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. It's an option play. Ryan? Uh, football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Landry perfected the shotgun formation with this team. Dallas Cowboys? Uh, Do you think we should go to commercial? (laughs) Ryan? Take it on to 600. Okay, by signaling for one of these, a returner can reel in a kick without fear of getting tackled. Fair catch. Two clues left, Ryan. 800. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And they are called offsetting penalties. Let's look at the uh, $1,000 clue, just for the fun of it. (laughs) Jimmy? As Minneapolis's
2: US Bank Stadium prepares to host Super Bowl 52, I'm looking at the Ring of Honor with names from this defensive line that took the Vikings to four Super Bowls.
0: If you guys ring in and get this one, I will die. (laughs) (laughs) Who are the purple people eaters? We're gonna take a break. I have to talk to them.
2: <laughs> Obviously, that was the, the last category. Nobody went near that category of that group. But anyway, uh, Alex, will miss you. Uh, I just don't know how they're going to continue on without him because when you do something that long, like almost four, four decades, that's, uh, you've become a part of people's fabric in their home. Yeah, it's uh, it, like I said, two tough losses, and uh, we just wanted to salute both of them. Before we go, and before we uh, settle in and watch the Masters this week, uh, anything else you want to talk about? We've, we've, we've touched on a lot of stuff today. That Cam stuff was fantastic.
3: Yeah, you know what? I, I haven't, uh, you know, Cam's retired now and uh, living out in Kelowna, happily so. He still plays a lot of golf. I'm looking forward to the Masters, but I got to tell you, I worked for, with Cam uh, for a number of years at the Journal, Then he went to the National Post, and he's moved around what used to be the old Southern chain. Yep. I haven't seen a lot of people who could write golf like Cam Cole could. And it's funny, Bryn, I've got a constant reminder, even though I don't play as much as I once did, and I can't play the game like Cam can, I've still got – when Cam went that first time in 93 and we flew into Florida – he came back. I don't know if he bought a new suitcase or whatever, but he had the swag for everybody back in the sports oh, department. Oh, bet. And still on my golf bag to this day from the 1993 Masters, I've got the green and white Masters towel on my... Wow. Yeah, I've kept that ever since then. And it just, you know, it's a nice reminder, but more than that, I, it was nice talking to Cam again because, like I say, he's one of those guys who could really get the story across and tell you something you didn't already know by looking at the leaderboard. So uh, happy retirement, Cam, but uh, we really appreciated the time today.
2: And I never had a chance to mention it to him. I don't think I've ever mentioned it to him, but, uh, but I, I will. When I was a cup reporter and I was at uh, the university campus radio station, CJSR, mm-hmm. and I remember showing up at an Oilers practice one day because, they, God bless the Oilers, they would give the campus radio station uh, accreditation back in the day, And I always remember uh, he gave me great advice, and that was stand back. If you have questions, do it after the senior guys ask the questions. When things start to thin out a little bit, and you'll feel more comfortable. Check. Great, great piece of advice he gave me. And the other one was try to ask a question. Now, sometimes you want that reaction from a player, like an emotional reaction, and a question won't do it. But I always remember Cam saying, try to ask a question mm-hmm. and try to do it as quickly as you can so, uh, so we can all move on. And I still remember those two pieces of advice he gave this young kid as I was starting out in the mid-80s. So a big tip of the cap. Thanks to Cam for coming on today. Robin, thanks. Uh, this has been a blast. Of course, mm-hmm. The Outsiders is brought to you by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. And uh, one of the things we were talking about earlier uh, right now, at least at last report, they're looking for a new agent. Just depends on when you download this podcast too, though, right? That's the thing. But anyway, if uh, you're looking for a new gig and you're an agent, give Brent a call at the Macintosh Group at 780-464-0075. You can check them out online at macintoshgroup.ca. And uh, Brent and any of his team members would be more than happy to help you And uh, right now, they're still getting sold signs put up on homes here in the Edmonton area. So give them a shout. Also, check out his podcast. I'm happy to be part of that one as well. Robin, thanks for your time, and we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the golf, okay?
3: See you then.
0: it earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.